case you were wondering where we're going to be this morning, you can open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. So go ahead and get there with me, Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 8. Madeline, beautiful prayer, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, man, to think that uh, she prayed the spiritual armor over us this morning, that was incredible. And uh, Ava, beautiful song, too. Thank you for that. Well, as we're getting into the scriptures, I have a pop quiz for you, okay? So we're going to start off with some fictional characters, and then we'll move into nonfiction. How do you defeat Superman? Kryptonite. Okay. Say it a little louder. I'm deaf. All right. Yes, Bear. Not quite. <laughs> You'd actually break your hand if you did that. How do you defeat a vampire? Garlic. Steak. What about a werewolf? Silver bullet. Okay, let's get into nonfiction. How do you defeat Satan? That's the million-dollar question, and that is worth the price of admission this morning, okay? We've been in this series now for three weeks. We're in our fourth week. We're looking at Know Thy Enemy. We began by discerning through the Scriptures that Satan is real. We moved from there, and we looked at his origins, and in his origins, we saw his nature and his fundamental character. And then we went over to Genesis 3, at the, looked at the first temptation, and it was there that we saw Satan's strategies. This is how he goes about tempting you, and he's not very creative. He uses the same strategies, but they're always effective. Unless, of course, we combat him. So the million-dollar question is, how can I defeat Satan? Now, we're going to get the answer to that this morning from Ephesians chapter 6. This is a classic text about spiritual warfare, and it's here that we see that God has given us certain equipment that we can don upon ourselves in order to fight this spiritual battle. So I'm going to read it to you again. This passage is so important. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
Amen. The word of the Lord. So I'm going to quote from some sagely wisdom from boxing's former heavyweight champion, Mike Tyson. Here's what he said. Everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. Have you ever been punched in the mouth spiritually? Have you? Now, before we can even get into Satan's kryptonite this morning, we have to look at a strong warning that Paul gives us from this passage. In verse 13, he says that you will face an evil day. And then he goes on in verse 16, and he says that the enemy is launching fiery arrows at you. Now, I believe that the evil day in this passage signifies two realities. One reality is the evil day is that time period from the time that Christ ascended to sit at God's right-hand side till the time that he returns to come for us again. So this entire time period in the scriptures is referred to as the evil day. In fact, as you look at Ephesians 5, 15 to 16, look carefully then. You walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because what? The days are evil. So this is a period where there will be the intensification of evil all the way up to the tribulation period, all the way up until Christ returns. Now another reality, though, is that the evil day can also represent a time in your life when demonic hostility toward you is at its worst. That's the punch in the mouth. That's that period in your life where you are stunned, where you are disoriented, where spiritual attack has peaked. It's almost like Satan puts your face in the bullseye of a dartboard, and he just keeps throwing the dart over and over and over again. One commentator explains that the attacks are constantly repeated and of incalculable variety. He goes on to say that they are not only inner temptations to evil, but every kind of attack and assault that you can imagine. I was just speaking with one of our members this week, Dean Smith, and he was telling me about the last couple of weeks in the life of the Smith family, and this is what these incalculable variety of attacks can look like. Charles was rushed to the ER. He has a shellfish allergy. He had asked for some food, and they accidentally had a piece of shrimp in it. He goes to the ER and prays the Lord. He was able to be uh, treated for this, but boy, that just came out of nowhere. And in their son, Dean Jr., is driving down the road. He is involved in a wreck that was so severe that everyone that witnessed the wreck said he shouldn't have walked away from it alive. Thank God he was unscathed. Olga goes to be with him and help take care of him at the service center. She's got her car parked while she's waiting on them, and someone rear-ends her. One thing after another. What did it say in the Scriptures? An incalculable variety, right? A dart that's coming at you all the time. You have to be on guard. And that's why, church, we need to be praying for one another. Because these things can be happening all the time. But 
What I love about the Lord's work is he continues to move even as the enemy assaults. So while all of this is going on, Trey and Lauren, who are doing the church plant in Florida, just received 100% full financial support for the two years of the church plant. Isn't that incredible? Yes. Now listen, we actually need to be praying for them more now. (laughs) Because as we advance the gospel, of course the enemy wants to counteract that. Spiritual warfare happens in the normal warp and woof of life. Your marriage struggles. Children who seem to be pulled away like a magnet from the things of God. Uh, Your work environment that just seems to grow increasingly oppressive to you. Even in your own spiritual life, when, when you have this pull personally away from the things of the Lord. It's spiritual warfare. And the question you have to ask yourself is, how do I fight back? How do I fight against these things? Well, Paul gives us the most important piece of advice in verse 10. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Here's what he means. The opposition that we face is so intense, so attractive, so destructive, so relentless, that if you think that you can live the Christian life in a matter of human effort or exertion, you have misread the nature of this battle, and you don't stand a chance. Now, if you're a note taker, just go ahead and take a picture of the screen because you'll write your hand off there. But it's true. Be strong in the Lord is it's a passive verb. This means that this is something that God does in you, not something that you do in you. In fact, we could better translate it by saying, be strengthened in the Lord. Because that would remind us then that All that we need, everything that we have in this spiritual battle comes to us from the Lord. It reminds me of what the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. Why, Joshua? Why should you not be frightened? Why should you not be dismayed? Is it because you and yourself are strong? No. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You see, Paul tells you, the believer, that you take on his strength by putting on the spiritual armor. This is uh, an allusion in the scriptures back to Isaiah chapter 59. Now, in Isaiah's day, Israel had cast aside much of the things that hold up God's moral virtues in the social fabric, things like truth and justice and righteousness. So verse 16, the Lord says, it says, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought his salvation. Righteousness upheld him. God's looking at all of this and he's saying that Israel can't do this, so now I've got to take matters into my own hands. And in verse 17, God dresses for battle. It says he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. 
You see, church, the full armor of God, which you and I are urged to put on daily in this spiritual battle, according to Isaiah, is God's own armor. The armor that he himself wears as he goes into battle. In fact, some of the articles that we are encouraged to wear, such as truth and righteousness and salvation, suggest to us that we are actually putting on God himself, or at least his characteristics, which calls to mind Romans 13.4, where Paul encourages us and he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its nature. So let's just put this all together for a minute. We're called to be strengthened by putting on the armor of God. It's God's own armor. This armor is God's own characteristics. And we're told in Romans 13, 14 to put on who? Christ. What does this mean? Well, it means everything you need to stand strong in this spiritual battle is found in Christ. It's not found in you. It's not found in some secret, mystical, religious experience that you've just been waiting to have. It's all found in Christ, his strength to fight, his strength to stand, his strength to advance. So what is this power that Paul's talking about here? It's described all throughout Ephesians. It's the, the power at work in you is the same power Paul said earlier in Ephesians 1.19 that rose Christ from the dead and seated him at God's side. He said, I also pray to you that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that Christ that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly places. You know, Jesus has already proven himself sufficient to overcome the powerful, diabolical forces. We just sang about that in the song that Ava was singing. The enemy is standing against us, but it was what? At the cross when Christ defeated him. In the resurrection, he proved himself victorious over death. When he ascended to the right hand of God, he was vindicated before all. That same power... It was at work through salvation history is a power that is at work in you, the believer. Now, how do you gain access to that? Well, according to the Scriptures, you gain access to that power by the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 3.15, Paul's praying over the church, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner, inner strength through his Spirit. And then listen to verse 17 closely. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. The power that Paul is talking about is unfathomable because God himself is unfathomable. In Ephesians 3.20, he says, Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. How do you 
put this armor on and keep this armor on. I want to suggest that you do this by abiding in Christ. It turns out that that daily habit of abiding in Christ, whether it's opening the Scriptures, praying, getting into community with other believers, that all of these things matter eternally in this spiritual battle that we're in. In my Thrive group, just this last week, one of the members was talking about their habit of abiding in Christ, and they said, I would rather walk down Main Street naked than leave my house without having met with Christ. Now that one I remember. (laughs) You know, what he's saying is he feels more exposed spiritually when he leaves his house if he hasn't met with Christ than if he were to walk down Main Street naked. Friends, let me just tell you, that's why transformation is the core of our mission. We don't gather here at Osterville Baptist Church for the sake of behavior modification so that we can kind of all walk out of here and say, I'm a good moral person, I'm pretty good with God, I'm good with myself, I'm good with others. No, we recognize the reality that I am fallen. And unless Christ does a radical work within my character, I am susceptible in this spiritual battle. I also want to say this of transformation. Transformation happens best in the context of church community. When we talk about transformation, we're talking about gathering together at Sunday a.m. and in Thrive groups, women's Bible study, men's Activate groups. All of these things are spaces and places where God uses other believers' spiritual gifts to grow us to look more like Christ. You know, it's so true. We're better together. We need one another. You see, Christ-like character is what we all need because Christ-like character is Satan's kryptonite. Remember, Satan is seeking to gain a foothold in your life. He wants to gain the upper hand. And the way that he does this is he wants to promote character flaws in you. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this. He says that Satan's operating through the character flaws of uncontrolled anger. That's verse 26. Falsehood, verse 25. Unwholesome talk, verse 29. Essentially, any conduct that is contrary to the character of Christ. Why? Because Satan doesn't want you to live for Christ. He doesn't want you to fulfill Christ's goals for your life. So you put on the character of Christ, the full armor of God, so that you can stand firm. He doesn't mind the Roman centurion. Now these were some bad dudes back in the day. They would be in close combat odds against them, looking eyeball to eyeball with their enemy, and they would not flee from it. It was a mark of them. Paul's saying, you, believer, you need to stand firm like that. Well, how do I do it again? I put on the armor, Christ-like character, Satan's kryptonite. In verses 14 to 17, he, he itemizes these pieces of armor. He begins with the belt of truth. Think about a belt's purpose. And one thing that 
quickly stands out is the rest of this armor really isn't going to hold together without the belt. Uh, the Roman soldier would wear the belt because the dress of that day was a tunic. And you can just imagine it's like a man running around in a dress. It kind of went down to their knees. And how would it be to run into battle in a dress? I think some of the ladies could help me out here on this one. You'd fall. And if you fall in battle, you die. That's kind of the point. Now think about the belt of truth. Is it easy to wear truth today? You know, you look at Isaiah 59 again, and Isaiah said this of truth in his own day and age. Verse 15, truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It's true then, it's true today. It costs you to wear the truth. In our own time, if you uphold traditional marriage, it's going to cost you something. If you believe that gender is an immutable, unchangeable characteristic assigned to a human being at birth by God, it will cost you. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, as Isaiah said, you become a prey. You see, truth has stumbled in the public square, and to wear it could result in you being canceled. Now, here's the temptation in an atmosphere like this. The temptation is to take your belt off and run around in your tunic. It's easy to think to yourself, you know, maybe I'll let these areas of truth just slide, or I'll keep my mouth quiet about them. I will just simply live and let live. But what happens when you run around without your belt? You fall. You fall flat on your face. And I'll tell you, believers, the more I watch Christians give over areas of truth, the more I watch them kind of give over more and more areas of truth. To live in a, an environment where you say to yourself, you know, morality is kind of a sliding scale thing. The truth is subject to change. That is like trying to build your house on thin air. The things that 20 years from now we think are largely important and relevant now, they won't really be the things we talk about 20 years from now. No, truth though, truth is different. How can you do anything without truth? That is like building your house on a firm foundation. And according to the scriptures, this is where you get your best source of the truth. It's timeless. It doesn't change in 20 years. It's eternal in its significance. Now, if you move to the next piece, the breastplate of righteousness, I would submit that this is living your life according to the truth. That the breastplate is covering your torso. It's covering those vital organs. Righteousness is a protection to you. In the New Testament, righteousness largely deals with how you conduct yourself in your relationships, but also within your private sphere, who you are when no one's looking. So within your relationships, of course, the most important relationship you have is your relationship with God. 
But then there's all kinds of other relationships. How you conduct yourself in your business dealings. How you conduct yourself with legal matters. Who you are when no one's looking. To contrast righteousness, the Bible talks about wickedness. You want to know what wickedness really is? It's a person who lives as if no one else matters but me. It's all about me. I don't care what God has to say. I don't need to love my neighbor. I do what pleases me, what makes me look good. It's all about me, 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 me. Now, according to scriptures, again, righteousness protects you. A verse that comes to mind is Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. You know, there's all kinds of scams out there that play upon these dynamics. I've seen a scam out there where someone reaches out to you through email and and they say to you, I've accessed your webcam and I've gone into your computer, I've got all your passwords, and I have video of you viewing content that was unpure and unwholesome, and unless you send me $5,000, I'm going to send that video to everyone in your email contact. A person that has a guilty conscience, you know what they do? They send the $5,000. But the righteous person, they send something like this in the webcam. You see, don't actually send that because they will steal everything from you, your social security and all of that. But the point is, is that righteousness protects you. When, when you've been conducting yourself in the right way, guess what? You don't care when someone sends a scam like that. You say, no, you didn't. I didn't do that. I'm fine. Now, if we want to grow in righteousness, I want to suggest that that comes with Christians in accountability with one another in relationships. We actually just looked at this yesterday at Activate, and one of the principles that they shared with us, one of the applications is they said you have to be in relationships where you're ruthlessly honest. Not with everybody, but guys with another guy, women with another woman. In that context, sharing your real character struggles so that you might grow. Let's look at the gospel shoes now. Paul, uh, the ESV translation says that these are shoes where you have put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. So this translation, according to the ESV, would indicate that you have some kind of inner peace, and as you appropriate that truth, then you're propelled forward to go about and live the spiritual life. But I want to suggest that there's a better translation. This translation is having put on the readiness to proclaim or share the gospel of peace. So in this context, we're really talking about gospel advancement. You proclaiming the words of life to others. And and there's two reasons I think that it should be interpreted this way. The first has to do with what the shoes represented. The Roman soldier wore caliga. They uh, They were boots that had iron studs in them, and they would help that soldier to march long distances. And that was about advancing the battlefront, right? 
But also, this text is clearly pointing back to Isaiah. And Isaiah 52.7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. So how do you get yourself ready to share the gospel? Well, I think it comes with becoming comfortable with how to share the gospel. We have a study here at church that we've produced. It's called Principles for Effective Evangelism. It's filmed by Dr. Harry Fletcher, and in it there's five sessions where he's essentially just coaching you on how you can share the gospel with other people. I have to tell you, church, there is nothing better than experiencing the miracle of new birth right in front of your eyes. It's life-changing. It's life-changing for you, but it's really life-changing for the person who's come to know Jesus as their Savior. Let's look at the next piece, the shield of faith. So the Roman soldier carried large shields. It wasn't the shield that we see in a lot of the movies, that circular shield. It was a shield that would cover you from head to toe, sometimes four to six feet in length. And these shields were specially designed to put out arrows that were dipped in pitch and then lit and shot at the other enemy soldiers. And we saw that Satan is attacking you with fiery arrows. And I want to suggest that one of the biggest weapons that the enemy shoots toward your direction is fear. He loves to assault you with fear because he knows that when you live out of fear, you won't live by faith. You know, the Bible tells us over and over and over again, 365 times, do not, what? Fear. It's almost as if the Lord has for us a daily reminder, don't be afraid. Continue to fight the battle. So how do I combat fear in my life? Well, according to this, the shield of faith is that weapon or armament for us. I combat fear by appropriating the promises of God. Every time I'm given to a fearful thought, I remember the things that God has said to me that he's promised that he would do in my life, and I live in light of that reality, not in light of fear. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, how? Firm in your faith. And probably the greatest promise is the next piece of equipment. This is the helmet of salvation. Satan wants to take the kill shot on you. The head is the most vulnerable part of the human body. That's why I believe many of the verbs of spiritual warfare all revolve around your mind. Be alert. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. If he can get that kill shot, then he has you totally disoriented. Well, the helmet of salvation is that piece of armor that protects your mind. And I want to suggest that Paul is talking 
to us about the assurance of salvation here. Now, we're looking at, in my Thrive group, uh, in the first lesson, we looked at the difference between eternal security and the assurance of salvation. A lot of Christians don't really know the distinction between the two of those things, but it's a very helpful distinction. Eternal security is objective. You want to know what that means? It means it's true no matter how you feel about it. Don't care how you feel. If you were to die today and stand before Jesus, if you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior, guess what? You're one of his children. You're saved. Assurance, on the other hand, is the confidence we feel about that truth. I remember when I was a young Christian, I used to pray to receive Jesus a lot. I'd pray it over and over and over again, maybe just in case it didn't stick when I prayed it the first time, or, you know, as I was going about my day, I said something I shouldn't have said, did something I shouldn't have done, and I was just a little fearful that maybe I did something that would cause God to remove my salvation. Again, if I was to die in that moment, stand before Jesus, still a child of God, still welcomed in with open arms. But the problem was, again, my confidence my assurance, my emotions weren't in line with the truth. But when you feel assured, you trust that you are saved and you live in confidence of that. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says that the helmet is the hope of salvation. Hope. Every single Christian needs to live with hope. I'm not talking about that pie-in-the-sky dream that we have. Oh, I hope the Patriots win today. No. I'm talking about hope that is based in reality that I am sure that this is going to happen. So if you ever struggle with assurance, you need to go back to Scripture that produces hope in your heart. Scriptures like 1 Corinthians 15 51 to 55, listen to what Paul says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? We read this text all the time at funerals. Now, do you think that we're reading this text to build assurance into the deceased? Of course not. And this person has gone on, and their faith is now sight. They're standing in Jesus' presence. They're made new. They're glorified. No, we're reading this text because we need assurance. We need to remember these truths and live in light of them. So church, wear the helmet. Well, this morning, I'm going to stop here. 
We're going to pick up with the sword and prayer next week because this would have been like a 50-minute, maybe 60-minute sermon if I continued. But I want to leave you with two pieces of spiritual application about this battle that you're in. And these come from voices from the past, spiritual men who have lived this life and and they did it and fought the good fight. The first is from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Like the Spartans, every Christian is born a warrior. This is about your self-understanding. How do you view yourself in this spiritual battle? Do you look at yourself as a bystander, a deserter, a casualty? No, as you look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, you, Christian, are not a casualty, you're not a bystander, you're not a deserter. You are a Christian soldier. And you're called to fight in the Lord's army. So you need to take up the armor of God and you need to live in light of that reality. The second quote is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, every single portion of this armor is absolutely essential. And the first thing you have to learn is that you are not in a position to pick and choose. You can't go about life without wearing the belt. You have to wear the belt. You're susceptible. You're going to fall if you're not wearing the belt. Or what about the breastplate of righteousness? Of course you have to conduct yourself righteously. Of course you should not allow fear to dictate your life. You should hold the shield of faith and you should follow God's promises. This morning, as you've been reflecting on these pieces of armor, let me ask you, is something missing? Scripture said where the whole armor of God. Is there a piece that's missing right now in your life? And if so, I encourage you, by the word of God, put it on. Put it on today. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we have looked at the spiritual armor, we recognize that this is your very armor. Isn't it incredible to think, God, that you would Give us the very pieces of equipment that you yourself take into battle. In fact, as we looked at Romans 13, 14, we see that we're to put on Christ himself. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that every blessing, every spiritual blessing that I have in this life, I have because of Jesus. Spirit of God, I thank you that you dwell within us and that you lead us to more firmly understand the love of Christ in our lives and to live the life that he's called us to live. I pray this morning that if there's any piece of armor that may be lacking in our lives, that today would be the day, Lord, that we put that piece back on and we live in light of it. We love you. We pray your protection always. In Jesus' name, amen.